Do you guys hear me okay? All good? Cool. Awesome. Good morning, everybody. It is um, just so sweet to be together. Um, what a joy it is to be able to worship together um, through song, through prayer, through service, through fellowship, um, and now with just being able to study the Word together. Um, and as I was preparing for this morning, um, there were two questions um, that were kind of guiding my thoughts, my, my intentions, my desires for what um, we would talk about today. And those two questions are, who do you say that Jesus is, and how do we respond to the truth of who he is? So um, my task today is threefold. Um, the first is, um, like Brian said last week, we're going to talk, talk a little bit about the longer ending of Mark, um, verses 9 through 20 in chapter 16. Um, but then the second thing that we're going to do is we're going to revisit uh, verses 1 through 8, um, in chapter 16, kind of what Brian preached last week. And then lastly, what we're going to do, um, we are going to look and reflect on the identity of Jesus as displayed throughout the, the Gospel of Mark. Um, but before we do that, let's uh, spend some time in prayer. So please pray with me. Jesus. It's you, it's always been you, um, the one who is worthy of all of our, all the honor, all the glory, all the praise. Jesus, is so sweet um, this morning to already be reminded of the goodness of the gospel, the grace that is in Jesus through his death on the cross and in his resurrection, that we now have new life in you because of Jesus. So Jesus, we ask that you would be here with us this morning. Would you fix our eyes upon you? Would you fix our eyes upon your cross, upon the empty tomb? Would you stir our affections for you, our desires for you? May we yearn for you this morning. And Jesus, we're just asking that we would get to encounter you this morning. To rest in your presence, to rest in your grace, to be reminded of who you are, to be reminded of truth, to be comforted by that truth, and to be drawn back to you. So Jesus, would you draw us to yourself today? We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, my hope today is that we would be able to kind of take a step back and take a look at the whole book of Mark as a whole. Um, so, over a year now, we've kind of going passage by passage, story by story through the book of Mark, and it's been quite the journey. It's been awesome and amazing learning about how Mark is displaying the life of Jesus throughout the gospel. Throughout the gospel. Um, we've gotten to see and read and study about his works, his miracles, his healings, um, and then recently, we've been focusing on his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. Um, and I don't know, as I've been thinking about like the past this past year, it feels like we're we've been putting together the pieces of a puzzle. Um, and I don't know about you, but I love puzzles so much. Uh, they are I don't know if I would say they're fun, but they're just therapeutic. You're just sitting there putting the puzzle pieces together, and it's just relaxing. You don't have to think about anything else other than let me just find the right piece and put it together. 
And uh, maybe sometimes I'm a little too ambitious about how quickly I can get them done. But nonetheless, they're still fun to do. Um, but to say that, I feel like it's like a helpful analogy to think about our journey throughout the Book of Mark, that each story that we've gone through has been almost like a puzzle piece. We've been connecting these stories like puzzle pieces together, and we're building this larger story of, of the gospel of Jesus, of who he is, his identity, his character, his works. Um, and so um, today what we kind of get to do is kind of take a step back and look at the whole picture that Mark has been creating for us. Um, and we get to kind of see like all these pieces fit together and how everything's woven together and how we get to see who Jesus is um, throughout his gospel. So if you have your Bible with you, um, feel free to turn to Mark chapter 16. Um, so we're going to be spending some time in there today. But if you don't have a Bible, um, we have some on the ends of the aisles for you. Um, or feel free to use your phone, whatever works best for you. Um, but yeah, so last week, uh, Brian preached through uh, verses 1 through 8 of Mark chapter 16. And uh, today we're going to be making our way back there. Okay, again, Mark chapter 16. Um, so... In looking right above verse 9, you might see something that says something like this. Uh, it probably says, some, the earliest manuscripts uh, do not include verses 9 through 20. Uh, Brian brought that up last week. Maybe that was the first time you've ever heard of that. Maybe you've heard that multiple times. Maybe even today is the first time you heard that. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, we can read things in Scripture and be like, I don't know what that means, so I'm just going to pass over it. But today what we're going to do is we're going to take some time to, to look at what that means. Um, and how that shapes the way that we read um, these verses, 9 through 20, in the book of Mark. Um, yeah. uh, also, you might notice that the, the whole paragraph is maybe in italics or bracketed, um, just because they're kind of sectioning it off, kind of making it a little, little bit distinct. Um, but in order to do that, um, we kind of have to take a step back a little bit. Um, and I don't know, there's this question that came to my mind this week as well of like, like, how did we get the Bible that we have today? Um, I think if you'd asked me that question maybe many years ago, I probably, like as a younger believer, I probably wouldn't have given a second thought about it. I've been like, I don't really know, but I have it today, so that's all that matters. <laughs> um, but um, I think it's important for us as believers to kind of get to know a little bit of the history as to how we got the Bible that we have today. Um, but also to be able to know what we believe about the Bible and what we believe it is, what it isn't. Um, and for us to be able to just understand that and how that shapes the way we, we relate to God and relate to the Word. Um, so, all that to say, as believers, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Um, that it is God communicating, communicating His truth about Himself to us. Um, so it tells us about who God is. It tells us about His Son, Jesus, how Jesus came to this world to save sinners and to redeem mankind back to Himself. Um, we believe that the Bible is reliable and that it's inspired by God. Um, it, what that means when we say something is, that the word is inspired by God, it means that God is the one who, who spoke through human authors um, to communicate the truth about himself. So the Bible isn't just a book about um, for humans that wrote it about human wisdom about who God is, but God is directly speaking through these human authors to convey the truth about who he is um, and to help us learn more about Jesus um, and about the world and who we are in relation to Jesus. Um, so um, we also see this supported in 2 Timothy uh, verses, verse three, sorry, chapter 3, verse 16, um, where it says and testifies this about Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So God gave us his word so that we might know him, so that we might 
um, be able to be encouraged by his word, to be edified, to be built up, to know him, um, to know the truth about him. Um, and so it's important that we get to understand what is the Bible? How, how do we get to what we have today? And so to explain this further, um, I have a helpful chart that, um, yes, there it is, cool. Um, yeah, a helpful chart to kind of help kind of shape how we got here to where we have today, the Bible today. So um, the first thing I kind of just want to mention is that the Bible was not originally written in English. Um, I probably thought that when I was first a believer, but, <laughs> um, but knowing that the original texts were actually written in the Old Testament, it was Hebrew and Aramaic. Um, but then the New Testament was written in Greek. Um, so um, in order to kind of get uh, where we are today, there's a lot of things that happen in between that. Um, so as we touched on earlier, if we're looking at the, the top of the, of, the, of the chart, we see how God inspired and spoke through human authors to write the original text of Scripture. So that's like the first three. You see God speaking through the human authors to um, write these original texts. Um, and then from there, um, what would happen is scribes would, would make copies of these texts, um, and there would be copies of these copies um, to, to be able to spread it through the faith community so that people could hear the Word of God and hear Scripture. Um, and for example, we have a lot of these copies nowadays. Um, we have, today, we have over 5,000 copies of the New Testament manuscripts, um, which makes it one of the most well-preserved documents in history. Um, there's a lot of other documents in antiquity where there's maybe like 10 or a, a couple, a handful. Um, and a lot of scholars, whether they're secular scholars or biblical scholars, will say um, that they're, those are reliable. So comparing 10 to 5,000 <laughs> is a lot. So it's super cool seeing just the witness of, of Scripture that we have in the manuscripts in the New Testament. Um, but that being said, with the multitude of copies that we have of Scripture, um, with those copies, there are variances between them. And a variance can be a wide variety of things. It can be like a small difference, such as a misspelled word. Maybe a letter is omitted. Um, but then there also are some times where, um, in some cases, but it's still very rare where a section was added um, for clarity purposes. Um, but those, again, aren't very common. That is in the case here of Mark, Mark 16, potentially, as well as John 8, and then potentially another section in 1 John. But again, those are very rare. A lot of times these differences are with the misspelled words and um, omitting a letter. Um, so if there are differences between these manuscripts, how do we understand what the Bible said or what the original text actually said? Um, and through a process uh, called textual criticism, that's a, a big word, um, biblical scholars uh, would compare these manuscripts together to be able to figure out what the original text would have said. Um, so the, the works of these best, uh, of these, these uh, biblical scholars, they would look at all these manuscripts, compare them, and be able to determine what, what they would have said, and they would put them in what was called a critical text, which you can see um, on that chart, there's the copies of the original text, and it goes all down to the um, the critical text. And so that would start where you would have like your Hebrew Old Testament or like your Greek New Testament. And from there, this is a long process, uh, we have the translator of the translation commi committee. So they would be the ones who are translating it from these um, original languages to English. Um, and then we get the Bible to us today. Um, so all that to say, there's a lot of steps that took place in order for us to get the Bibles that we have today. Um, well, I think that it's helpful for us to kind of understand this um, to see, you know, what was the process? How did we get to the point where we are today? Um, and also just to understand kind of preparing us for what, you know, going back to that comment we read earlier about 
some of the earliest manuscripts didn't include verses 9 through 20. But before diving into um, how this shapes our view of verses 9 through 20, um, I just want to make a few comments uh, about these variances as well. Um, for the vast majority of Scripture, um, there are not any uh, textual differences. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the manuscripts, there's a lot of similarities in the way it was written. Um, again, these scribes, like their whole job was to make sure that they were copying this exactly the way that the text that they were looking at. Um, so there, there weren't a lot of, uh, there was not a lot of textual disputes here happening. Um, and where there are variances, it's really important for us to know that there's not any uh, Christian doctrines that are impacted or in question as a result of these variances. Um, there's a helpful quote from Paul Wegner. Um, he states in his book, A Student's Guide to Textual Criticism of the Bible. If you are interested, um, this could be a helpful book to read. Um, but he says this, The percentage of variance in the New Testament is small, approximately 7%, and no matter of doctrine hinges on a variant reading. So I think that's just helpful for us to have a framework, you know, it, it, in acknowledging that there are variances, but knowing that, like, it's a really small amount, but also in that, um, the doctrine of who we believe about Jesus and who God is is not impacted by these variants. Um, I also wanted to point out um, that with these variants, it, the issue at hand is not whether um, Scripture is inspired by God or not, but rather the question at hand is, is the, the transmission of the text. How are these texts copied and how are these, um, uh, these manuscripts made and produced and copied to make more copies? Um, but again, pointing back to the fact that we have so many copies um, and knowing that like, it's been well-preserved um, throughout history, um, we believe that, that God has providentially preserved the Bible throughout history um, so that we can have a tremendous deal of certainty about what um, the original text would have said. Um, and therefore, we can trust that the Bible and Scripture is reliable. Um, so I know that diving into a lot of that, there's a lot of technical stuff. I think it sets the stage for us to be able to understand um, this next section in verses 9 through 20 and shapes how we read it. It can shape how we read it. So we noted earlier, we see that the earliest manuscripts don't include verses 9 through 20. Um, but I also want to note that these earliest manuscripts are considered by scholars as some of the more um, reliable ones that we have. Um, and as a result, a lot of scholars would say maybe that the, the book of Mark ends in verse 8 rather than ending in, in verse 20. Um, so while there are other manuscripts that might include verses 9 through 20, um, uh, it doesn't necessarily point to the fact that they were original to Mark. It could be that they were probably added very early on. You know, the scribes may have seen it as like a favorable addition to, um, to the ending of Mark, and so they, they, they kept it in there. Um, but a lot of times, um, it, like, it doesn't necessarily mean that the original text included that. Um, just because, the, again, the earliest and the more reliable manuscripts are the ones that um, didn't include it. But there's also a couple other reasons that we can point to that helps us kind of shape the way we look at this. Um, so one, the early church fathers um, did not acknowledge, some of them didn't acknowledge the longer ending of Mark. They weren't aware of it, and they seemed to, to think that the ending of Mark ended in verse 8 rather than verse 20. Um, there's also differences in style from verse 8 to 20. So um, if you have your Bibles, you can look at it real quick. Uh, in verse 8, it talks about, um, it's referencing the women who went out and were, were fleeing. Um, but if you go to verse 9, it says, now when he rose early on the first day, um, he referring to Jesus, but it doesn't necessarily mention Jesus as the subject. 
um, anywhere before verse 9. So it's interesting that there's kind of like a, maybe a little bit of discontinuity in that. Um, but then also, uh, in verses 9 through 20, there's a lot of differences in words and phrases that were used. So it kind of is a little bit of an indicator of like, okay, would Mark have written it in a different, using all these different uh, vocabulary that he hadn't already introduced in the beginning of Mark? Um, and then lastly, um, something I want to point out, there's a lot of allusions and connections that are found in verses 9 through 20 that can also be found in the endings of Matthew, Luke, and John, also even the book of Acts. So um, it's interesting, it could be that the, the scribe who added it saw that, or was pulling from different sources to, to, pull, the, to pull this ending together, um, rather than it being original to Mark. But I think all that to say, in how we're going to approach this, um, is not to say that the longer ending of Mark is theologically inaccurate in any way, or that it is inconsistent with the rest of Scripture, um, especially in seeing that a lot of the content was pulled from potentially other sources, such as Matthew, uh, Luke, and John, and Acts. Um, but I think the question that lies here is whether these verses were original to Mark. And so with that being said, I think that we just kind of acknowledge that we, we approach this text cautiously. Um, as it may not have been original to Mark. But, um, and as a result of that, we're probably not going to spend um, a lot of time talking through these verses today, um, but instead, kind of direct our attention to if this wasn't Mark's original intent to include that in the end of his gospel, what was he doing? What, so if he was ending in verse eight, what does that mean? What is the intention for that? So um, as we read the last few verses of, of Mark in chapter 16 last week, we were left with this tension of the women running in fear and um, being terrified because the tomb is empty and Jesus wasn't there. Um, but um, there's just a lot of, again, kind of like what I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of different reasons as to you know, why this longer ending was added. Um, one, it could be that um, the scribe was trying to resolve some difficulty with the tension at the ending of that. Um, or it could be that some scholars would say that maybe the ending of Mark was lost, or sometimes they would say that Mark never finished it. But again, uh, like I mentioned earlier, it's, I think it's helpful to look back, what, is there intention behind why Mark uh, may have ended this gospel in verse eight? Okay, so in order to answer that question, we have to take a step back. Um, so we're gonna go all the way back to chapter one, verse one. Uh, Brian mentioned this verse last week in his sermon as well, but we find Mark's, uh, distinct claim about what he thinks about Jesus in chapter 1, verse 1. So he says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this is a packed statement. He's telling us a lot about what he thinks about who Jesus is in this passage, uh, in this verse right here. So the first thing that is he's communicating is he believes that Jesus is the Christ, which also stands for the Messiah or anointed one. He believes that Jesus is the one who would come and establish the rule and reign of God on earth, um, that he would be the one to die on a cross and rise from the grave, um, and that he would defeat sin and death and restore God's order to creation. Um, the second thing that we see also is that he calls him the Son of God, displaying Jesus' unique relationship to the Father, as well as communicating that Jesus himself is God. So what we're going to do is we're going to look through um, just be reminded of a lot of things that happen throughout the book of Mark. And so we want to look and see how does Mark reveal who Jesus is throughout his, his whole entire gospel. And I think, you know, through this journey, we've been able to reflect on a lot of different 
amazing stories. Um, I think about the stories of the healings that Jesus has did uh, for people with, for people with um, physical disabilities, ailments, illnesses, or even people who were being tormented or possessed by demons. He would bring his healing and his deliverance to, to people. Um, and we get this beautiful glimpse of the mercy and compassion of Jesus, um, who is showing, who's giving freedom to the people and who's restoring what was lost healing what was broken, um, and bringing what was once, you know, not good and making it good again, essentially. Um, and so it's just this, these beautiful passages of Jesus um, restoring what was once lost. And we saw that he doesn't only just have the authority to heal, but he also has the authority to forgive sins. And this was a crazy thing for a lot of the religious leaders. They're like, how can you say that you have the authority to forgive sins? But Jesus shows that he has the power to heal, the power to forgive, and that in his power he's displaying again his unique relationship with the Father and that he himself is God. And also, as we've been going through this journey, we've been witnessing these miraculous works of uh, Jesus walking on the water, of him um, calming the storms, of uh, him feeding the 5,000, the 4,000 with just a few scraps of bread and a few fish. He's doing these amazing things uh, through these stories and showing his power and authority um, like over creation like no man has ever had. And we see that all creation obeys to him um, and is subject to him. Um, I think like as we've been walking through um, the book of Mark, there's been three distinct groups of people that have stood on my mind um, of how they have responded to Jesus when they've witnessed his healing, his miracles, um, or even just his teaching. Um, so I think about like the disciples who, at the beginning, some of them were fishermen, some was a tax collector. They all had these different jobs, and Jesus is, comes to them and calls them to follow him. Um, and they, as they're growing throughout Scripture, they're understanding more and more of who he is and having a fuller understanding of the identity of Jesus. Um, a lot of them recognized him as a rabbi or teacher, but I can imagine that as they are witnessing Jesus perform these miracles and perform these, these healings, that they're probably like, I don't know any other teachers that are doing this. So there's something more that he's just, he's just more than just a teacher. And uh, so we see that Jesus, their idea of who Jesus is, of his identity is being shaped throughout scripture. Um, and one of the, my favorite glimpses of his identity that we see in the book of Mark is in chapter eight, verses 27 through 30. So um, it says this, and Jesus went on, with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And so we see these moments where these, the disciples are having these glimpses of like, oh, we understand, we, we see. But then you also see these other moments where they absolutely don't see. They, they kind of miss the mark a little bit of understanding who Jesus is, and they kind of sometimes seem to have this, this wrong perception about who Jesus is. I feel like sometimes when we're reading through the Gospels, you're looking at the disciples, and you're like, I just don't understand like, how you didn't see it. Like, like Jesus is doing all these amazing things, all these miracles. He fed 5,000 people with just a couple loaves of bread and fish. Like, how did he do that if he wasn't Messiah or God? And so sometimes I feel like they can get a bad rapper for that. But 
Um, I also like, I don't know, as I've been like on this journey, my own journey with Jesus and, and just being discipled by him and following him, like seeing the ways in myself of which like I could have seen the Lord work, you know, in the past and then the next day forget what he did. And then, um, or walking through like seasons of trials and, you know, I'm, I'm, maybe there's a season of a lot of suffering or just a lot of um, anxiety or worry. And, you know, I forget you know, all the things that the Lord has taught me throughout, <laughs> throughout my life in those moments because the, the season of suffering is so intense. And I question, I'm like, God, like, what are you doing here? I don't understand, like, what's happening? I don't see what you're doing. And, you know, I just am reminded, like, a lot of times, like, I'm like one of the disciples. Like, a lot of times, like, I don't see. Even when it's right in front of me, like, I can't see. And it's also so interesting, and I don't know about this for you guys, but sometimes, like, coming out of those seasons of trials, and when we're asking those questions of, like, God, I don't see what you're doing. I don't understand. You come out of that season. The Lord brings you through that season. And you look back on it, and you're like, oh, <laughs> that's what you're doing. I, did, I didn't see that then I, because I was so focused on, you know, myself or trying to, like, make things easier for myself. But I didn't see that through that season, you were bringing me closer to yourself. Um, and I think it's, it's so beautiful in the ways in, like, the, how God is gracious with us. Like, even when we don't understand a lot of times that he's still patient and he's still showing us who he is, even when we don't have a full, full understanding sometimes of what he's doing. Um, and I can imagine that the disciples might have felt that same way of, like, looking back, like, maybe after Jesus rose from the grave and, like, before he ascended to heaven and Jesus is spending time with the disciples, he's, like, teaching them about, every, like, all these things. So the disciples are like, Oh, like when you talked about this before, like I did not see that at all. But now like all these dots are connecting. And it's just like interesting, like a lot of times, you know, I think they say like hindsight is twenty twenty or whatever. But, uh, you know, it's interesting that sometimes that in those seasons, it's very hard to see what God is doing. But, you know, you look back on those seasons, you're like, oh, I, like after those seasons of past, you're like, okay, I can, I can see what the Lord is doing and how he's revealed himself. Um, and, um, yeah, so I think, like, with that, I just feel like a lot of times I'm just right there with the disciples that there's a lot of things that I don't understand, but discipleship is a journey. There's a lot of things that we're not going to understand this side of heaven, um, but we get to, to learn and grow um, and follow Jesus and have him teach us each and every day. But that was a little tangent. But the other group of people that I wanted to kind of bring up who we've seen respond to Jesus throughout the gospel mark are the religious leaders. So like the Pharisees and the scribes, um, we see like almost in every occurrence that Jesus is like teaching or healing or um, performing a miracle. And they're there and they're just like, nope, shut it down. We're not doing this. Like we're not having this. It almost seems like every time that Jesus was, was, was doing a miracle, miraculous work or teaching that they would push back or even try to corner him to say something that was false or blasphemous but they, def they weren't able to avail in that. Um, and we see that their opposition got so strong to the point of even, we looked at this past couple of weeks, but they were like, no, let's crucify Jesus. When Pilate asked, like, why? They're like, just crucify him. We don't, <laughs> it's like, they don't have a reason, just, cry, just crucify him. We don't want him here. The, the opposition was so strong against Jesus. Um, and I think with that, their response to, Jesus is the one that's really interesting and kind of baffling because I think throughout Mark, we've seen this common theme where the people who would be perceived as the closest to Jesus, the ones who would um, be the ones who should, you know, 
quickly run to him in his teaching are the ones that were furthest away. And then you see the flip side of that, where sometimes the people who were the furthest away, perceivedly, were the ones who were closest. Um, like I think about um, the book, or yeah, the book of John, the very beginning, uh, John says, like, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. It's interesting, though, the people like who Jesus came, um, the people who were closest to him, like they were the ones who sometimes would, like the Pharisees, or even some of his own people, like people back in Nazareth in his own hometown who rejected him. There are people who were his own who rejected him. But then now, if we, if we take a shift and look at this third people group, the Gentiles, which were the people who were not um, of Jewish faith, um, we see that they had these incredible remarks and claims about, uh, of who they believe Jesus is. And it just kind of baffles you because it's like the people who, who should have understood didn't, but the people who, like, how did you have a frame of reference of mind of who Jesus was are coming to him and saying, we need you. We absolutely need you. Um, and so I'm reminded of this story. We talked about it a long time ago. Back in Mark chapter 7, there is the story of the Syrophoenician woman who's a Gentile woman. And she comes to Jesus while um, he's, he's out ministering. And she's begging him and pleading that he would heal her daughter. Her daughter wasn't with her. She was back home. She comes to him and says, please heal my daughter. Please deliver her from this demon that is oppressing her. And so I'll, I'll read the, the story here. We have it up on the, on the screen as well. His response to her, he said, And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right for, to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. I think so often I've read that story and kind of just like really read through it, didn't really spend a lot of time thinking about it, but I was really, I don't know, I can imagine that in that moment, um, that Jesus was probably super blown away by this woman's like faith in him that like, I don't know what she understood about who Jesus was, but she was like, I have nothing else. Like, I, 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 you're the only one who can do this. I need you. And um, to see this, this, this amazing faith that this woman have, had, um, that she was even just begging, like probably even just for a scrap, like even a crumb of your power and your authority, we could see she would, she would believe that her daughter would be restored. And so it's just so cool seeing that like in contrast to these religious leaders um, who were opposed to Jesus, you have those who were considered outcasts and they were the ones that seemed like closest to him. Um, and it feels so upside down and so backwards. But a lot of times it feels like sometimes that's the way it, <laughs> things operate in the kingdom of God where the, the most likely things aren't always what they seem. Um, and then you see the stories like this where a Gentile woman who is outside of, of the Jewish faith who comes to Jesus and looking for, for deliverance for her daughter. Um, so we see these three different um, responses from these, um, these different people groups. Um, but throughout Jesus' life and ministry, um, he knew that there was something about his identity that they wouldn't really, no one would really be able to fully understand until it actually happened. Um, and that was the fact that, that Jesus would be crucified, that he would go and die on the cross and in three days be raised from the grave. Um, and it wasn't until, yeah, again, these, the crucifixion that the disciples would truly learn what it meant that he was Messiah, what it meant that he was Messiah, that it included that he would suffer, but that he would also be king, um, but then also that he would die. 
you remember that story um, we read a couple weeks ago? Uh, it's at the end of Mark chapter 15, um, towards the end of Mark chapter 15. Um, it's the final moments of Jesus on the cross. And we see his suffering um, on the cross, um, his misery. Um, and in the final moments of his death, we see him make a loud cry, and then he breathes his last breath. And standing there witnessing this is a centurion, which is a Roman soldier, um, who's watching him take his last breath. And his response is, truly, this man was the son of God. I just think that's remarkable that um, for a, a Roman soldier, for anyone, looking upon Jesus' death, and the immediately first thought, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. That he was both God and man. Um, if we remember, we talked about chapter 1, verse 1, just a couple of moments ago. What Mark claims about Jesus, that he was the Messiah, he's the Christ, and that he's the Son of God. And then as we worked through the book of Mark, we've seen... Um, just the identity of Jesus unfold as we understand through the gospel, building our understanding of who Jesus is. And everything is like crescendoing. And it seems like it's crescendoing to this moment where the centurion exclaims that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, and throughout the book of Mark, Jesus would tell people here and there, like, don't go in, don't, don't, don't tell people about who, you, about who I am just yet, just because they're not going to fully understand. They're not going to fully understand until he would be crucified and that he would die. And how amazing is it that the first human to recognize that Jesus is the Son of God wasn't one of the disciples who had been following him for like three years, but was a Gentile centurion who had part probably participated in, who watched Jesus' death and, and his crucifixion, and was probably there among the mockers and the scoffers. He's the first one who's like, who sees Jesus' death and truly this man was the Son of God. Someone who was not even a part of the Jewish faith, someone like, again, asking that question, I think I've always been blown away by this, but like, what was the concept? What was the understanding of Jesus in that moment? But I don't know how much this man knew, but his first comment is truly this man is the son of God. Um, and it's just so mind-blowing and so cool um, just to reflect on that. Um, so we've seen throughout the, um, just the book of Mark, you know, there, and throughout it, you know, we didn't even touch on all the stories of people responding to Jesus, but there's countless stories of these people responding to their encounter with Jesus. And so we're finally making our way back to <laughs> the verses 1 through 8, this culmination here um, in the ending of Mark. So um, just as a summary, we find that in these verses, we find Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, who have come to the, they're coming to the tomb of Jesus um, to embalm his body. Um, most likely what that meant was that they were going to um, put spices on his body to cover up the smell of the decay. Um, and coming up to the tomb, there this question comes to mind: like, how are we going? Like, the tomb is stone. The stone is over the tomb. How are we going to open the tomb? And but they get there and they look up, and it says, uh, in verse four, um, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, "Do not be alarmed." You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go 
Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. I feel like every story so far in the book of Mark has been building up to this point. And it's at the end that we're confronted with this full picture of who Jesus is, that he is um, the, the Messiah, the King, the Son of God, the one who was crucified, and the one who died for the sins of the world, who died for my sins, who died for your sins, and the one who endured the wrath of God that was poured out on Jesus for the punishment of our sins. I think we're presented here with the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus that God himself is the answer for our sin, for the sin that separates us from God. Um, I'm reminded of Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. It says this. Paul's addressing the Gentiles in Ephesus. He says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I love those verses. We who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. That there once was a chasm that separated us from God, but Jesus bridged that divide and made a way for us to have access to the Father through him. And not only did Jesus die for our sins, but he rose from the grave on the third day, giving us new life. And in this new life, we have freedom, and death is dead, and the penalty of sin has been paid for. We just revel and enjoy the beauty that there's nothing that we can do um, to earn his love, to earn his grace. He's given it freely. He's crossed that chasm for us um, so that we might have a relationship with him. So we return to the questions that I asked at the beginning of um, our time together. Who do you say that Jesus is? And how will we respond to the truth of who he is? If, we, if you go back to verse 8 in uh, chapter 16 of Mark, we see it says, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to no one, for they were afraid. We see in these last few verses that the women who went to visit Jesus' body were afraid to find that he had risen and was not there. I think when we read that, I, I mean, I think I feel the same tension maybe that the scribes might have felt, that it's like, what do you do with that? <laughs> it's like, why, why did they run in fear? I don't understand, like, what, why does it feel like it abrupt, like end, ends so abruptly? So, again, we talked about maybe Mark is intending something here, that he's, why he's ending it so abruptly. I think where I've kind of landed with this is that I feel like, uh, and Brian kind of talked to us about this a little bit last week, but I think that, this abrupt ending is almost inviting a response from the reader. It's inviting a response from us. That throughout the Gospel of Mark, he's been displaying the life of Jesus. He's been testifying to who Jesus is. We have now seen his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection. Um, and he's offering a response. How are you going to respond um, to the truth that Jesus is the crucified and risen Savior, the Son of God? And we see um, the women who ran, and so the question is, is our response to run? Um, or is the response to go and, and tell others of the good news of Jesus and acknowledge that Jesus is our own crucified Savior and risen King? 
Um, so I covered a lot this morning. We got to talk a little bit about textual criticism, which is, I did not see just the tip of the iceberg with that. So again, there's that book I talked about earlier if you're interested in learning more about it. Um, well, we come to the, the end of the book of Mark, and it's been quite a journey. And Jesus, um, uh, we're reminded that there, there's this response to um, who Jesus is this morning um, at the ending of, of the book. And so what I want to do um, in these next few moments is to take some time to reflect um, and to respond um, to the truth of who Jesus is. Um, so I don't know what that looks like for you this morning. Um, maybe that is spending time in prayer. Um, maybe there is a scripture um, that's coming to your mind. Um, maybe it's taking somebody and going to pray with them. Um, I don't know what that looks like, but um, I think my prayer for this morning has been that we would be able to encounter Jesus together, that we would be able to reflect on the things that we've learned these past few weeks and past year about who Jesus is, and that we would be able to just be able to respond to who he is. And I think that for all of us, there's a lot of different ways that we can respond. Um, but I think that um, you know, maybe the Lord is speaking something to your heart in that. And I don't know exactly what that is, but what I do want to do is, if um, and you, get, we can, you guys can come up and um, what, what I'm going to do is I'll spend some time in prayer. Um, but feel free to pray alongside me and um, let's just respond to the Lord together. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. That you have made a way for us to know you, to understand you, to, to hear and read and know about your crucifixion, your death, and your resurrection. And God, if I think if I'm honest, um, I feel like a lot of times I'm like the women running in fear from you. There's things that sometimes you call me to be obedient to and I run in fear. That's my first reaction. I think that for a lot of us too, that can be our first response is fear. But I'm thankful that just like the disciples, you have shown us grace and mercy and compassion and that you draw us to yourself so meekly so tenderly you draw us to yourself. And you say, instead of running away, run to me. Hide in me. Jesus, you know our hearts in this moment, in this time. You know where we are in our walks with you. You know our stories, our backgrounds, our history. You know every detail, and those details don't catch you off guard. 
whether we've been a believer for years and years, maybe we're a young believer, maybe we don't know where we're at with you. For each of us today, you're calling us to yourself. Jesus, thank you for making a way. Thank you for making a way back to the Father that we might have access to you. We might love you. That there would be peace and joy that we can enjoy because of you, Jesus. So I don't know what you're doing this morning, this moment, Lord. But there's fear that is present, Lord. I pray that you would cast out that fear with your perfect love. God, I pray that if there is someone today who feels alone in their walk with you, that they would be reminded that you are near, that you're a close friend, that you're walking with them every step of the way. God, for the one who's questioning you, who's doubting you this morning, who isn't sure about you, would you bring your presence, Lord? Would they feel your presence in the midst of those questions and know that you are near? And know that you are not caught off guard by those questions, Lord. God, if there's need for healing this morning, if there are physical ailments or sicknesses or illnesses, Lord, would you bring your healing? Maybe it's spiritual or emotional healing that we need, Lord. Maybe there's a secret sin that we're struggling with that we can't even think about bringing that to you or even bringing that into the light. Jesus, would you give us courage and remind us that we have access to you? God, if there is one who is walking through suffering this morning, walking through trials. It's hard to see the way out. Would you carry them this morning, Jesus? God, maybe there's oppression this morning from the enemy. Maybe there's lies in our head that we believe about you. Would you bring your truth, Jesus? Would you dispel any lies? We celebrate you this morning, Jesus. Jesus, we're grateful for your life, your death, your resurrection. That we don't have to stay in our sin, but we can walk in freedom and grace because you live, because you rose from the grave. That death is defeated, sin has been defeated on the cross. That you don't look at us, you don't see our sin and our shame anymore, but you see Jesus. You see his righteousness which covers us. And so Jesus, we say thank you. Thank you for doing what we could never do.
Thank you for dying a death that was ours and for giving us your life, new life, as a gift. So Jesus, thank you for this journey that you've brought us through, that you're bringing us through, that you will bring us through. Draw us closer to yourself, that we know you, the power of your resurrection, and that it was finished on the cross. We love you. We praise you more this morning, Jesus. Amen.